yeah, I try to to think of sustainability um, again in 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 um, in the in the context of research, and it, it's very difficult to do really research in in sustainability because because sustainability is a broad concept that integrates. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. With early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6% while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Exelete offers a new approach that is build-effective and the ZDUs. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gail Carpenter. I'm the State Dairy Extension Specialist at Iowa State University. And today I am joined by Michelle Watio, and I have practiced your name a lot, so I hope I got that right. Yes, good. <laughs> um, really excited to be joined by Michelle today. Uh, Michelle grew up on a dairy farm, uh, which is, yes, that is part of your education, I think. Uh, grew up on, on a dairy farm, uh, got a bachelor's degree in ag engineering from Bel in Belgium. Uh, and then after his bachelor's degree, went back to the family dairy for a couple years and then went to Wisconsin um, to do some graduate work at UW-Madison. And you've been stuck in Wisconsin ever since. Um, I won't say stuck. I'm sure it's a great place to be. Uh, but uh, he's been enjoying Wisconsin ever since. Yes, there you go. Uh, so he is currently faculty at uh, UW-Madison. Uh, he did. I didn't know this about you that you worked for the International Dairy Extension Specialist as a dairy International Dairy Extension Specialist with the Babcock Institute for International Dairy R&D. Um, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. It's kind of interesting. We can talk um, about it if you want. All right. <laughs> well, I know I'm really excited to talk to you today about your research and some of the stuff you've been doing. I know we have um, worked together quite a bit, but mostly on the teaching side with ADSA um, in some workshops and symposia and the teaching and undergraduate committee. So I'm kind of excited today to talk to you about your the other side of your job. Um, and uh, yeah, so why don't you, I guess, start by telling us, uh, you know, what what is your current role at UW and uh, kind of what's the history of how you got there? So, so my current role is professor um, in the newly minted animal and dairy science department only two years old now, after we merged, you know, the animal and the dairy science department. Um, I was hired about 23 years ago, actually. It's easy to remember, 2000. Um, yeah. That's good math. <laughs> yeah, that's why I look smart. Um, 
you know, and and uh, so I was hired into the department in 2000 with a 70 percent undergraduate uh, instruction responsibility. So oh. this is probably why we met and talked about teaching the first yeah. time. Um, and and I was tenured in 2006 with um, excellence in in uh, teaching and and a significant accomplishment in, in research. Um, and I know I continued throughout my career to um, almost like remind not just myself, but my colleagues around me that, you know, what they hired me for. And, and so, um, but, you know, being UW, UW Madison, it's, it's no secret that we are, you know, very research oriented. So from the very beginning, um, my research has been in, um, as I recall, when I put the foundation for a research program way back then was to say, well, we, we should we should no longer just formulate rations and do research in nutrition just to make the cow produce more milk. Um, we need to expand the boundaries of nutritional research. And my twist at the time was simply that, you know, I'm going to look at environmental aspect of, um, uh, you know, feeding cows different types of diet. And at the time I focused on, uh, I started focusing on nitrogen and in the first few years worked quite a bit on milk urea nitrogen um, to better understand how it could be used as an indicator uh, of nitrogen use efficiency uh, on the one hand, but uh, there was also research done by Rick Cohn and you know some others in, in Maryland at the same time showing how MUN was also highly related to urea nitrogen excretion uh, in the urine. And so I thought it was a pretty powerful tool to look at. And still to the day, I think we are not, we haven't tapped on the potential of MUN as an indicator um, to basically tell us what's going on at both ends of the cow. You know, what the cow co consume in terms of nitrogen and, and the losses in terms of uh, urea in the urine. So this, that was a start um, and I was lucky um, quite early on in my career to being able to collaborate with uh, scientists at the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center, you know, that we have in Madison. And one of my major collaborators over the years have been uh, Mark Powell, who is now retired, but Mark was really interested in um, more multidisciplinary effort. So very, quick, very quickly, my research program um, kind of expanded to just not looking at what the cow is doing with the diet, but what happened with the manure, because Mark was an soil scientist, agroecologist, um, who actually had a lot of experience working, you know, in, in that area um, before he came to Madison. So, so we expanded the boundaries of the research, um, again, to, to look at how the nutrients in the manure, the nitrogen at the time, you know, was being recycled in the crops. So we were trying to loop the loop, right? Um, the nitrogen through the cow, through the manure, through the soil, back to the feed, back to the cow that kind of cycle there. So the big picture kind of research has been driving my, my research. And then I'd say around 2012, 2013, um, we started to pay attention to methane, um, and did a series of work um, and haven't stopped yet, almost we're about to stop, um, just because of the fact that I'm close to retirement uh, to do, to do uh, this kind of research. But we, we've looked, um, you know, at, at the, some of the 
first experiment that we did <clears throat> with cows in chambers uh, to do um, emissions was the effect of forage to concentrate ratio. You know, um, it, it was like a, redoing some experiment that had been done in, in the 80s and the 90s, but now adding that environmental component to it. So just not look at animal performance, but also look at, again, urea nitrogen loss. We've always kept up with that work and now adding onto it the, the methane loss. So in a way, my research program can be summarized at looking at the inefficiencies of dairy cow. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of a fun way to look at it. And that's kind of a, you know, back home for you right now that urea story is really a hot topic, right? Oh, yeah, it's always been. It's always been, you know, in, in uh, the Netherlands and in Europe as a whole with the nitrogen um, um, mandate, you know, regulation that they have. And yes, um, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, well, I'm still in, in touch with my younger brother, who's still working on the farm um, just last Sunday, and, and we did spend a little bit of our precious time, you know, talking to one another about what's going on in the Netherlands with, you know, the, the governments having a proposal to actually, you know, mandate the, the, the buyout of cattle, you know. Um, I mean, truth be told, as I told, I'm going to tell you what the way I told it to my brother, you know, I said, you know, in a way, make a long story short, you know, Europe has been put together after the World War II because there was starvation and the European government said, no, never again will Europe, you know, starve. And so they really funded a lot, you know, agricultural research. And, you know, the Dutch in particular decided that dairy is going to be their things. And there's a lot of cows. In the <laughs> there's I think a lot there's of a cows. lot of cows and not a lot of space. And a lot, exactly, and a lot of water. Yeah. And if you got, if you got you know, leaky nitrogen, that really is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. You can have. Yeah. So yeah. So it's 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 a uh, it's it's not an easy thing to to deal with. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. But that's Europe. That's Europe. Yeah. I guess I'm. I I want to kind of dial in on some of that nitrogen story there a little bit. I know that we, so I come from kind of that nutrition background, focusing on, um, you know, amino acid balancing, like we call them low crude protein diets. I don't know. I think low crude protein diets is a little bit of a, it's true, but I don't think it's the best name for what we, it's a more efficient diet, right? It's not necessarily that we're just trying to lower crude protein. We're trying to make the cow more nitrogen efficient. So if we're looking at that story of, of urea, of nitrogen, of recycling nitrogen, where where are we going to have the most focus? Is it going to be in that in that diet that we're feeding or our manure management? What are some what do we need to be looking at if we're trying to mitigate some of that nitrogen impact? All of the above? Yes. Well, I think I think, you know, unfortunately, um, I, I think we've been limited in part in our nutrition research by dividing and conquering. Right. We, we keep going deeper and deeper into our silos. So if you do nitrogen research, you don't do energy research. Yeah. You know, if you do fiber research, you don't do fat research. Yep. And we are we are pigeonholed into our little cocoon. And that limits our understanding of how to make a cow more efficient. Um, and so I, I think I think for the cow, you know, the cow doesn't decide, well, this is nitrogen. I need to figure out what to do with it. Or this is <laughs> carbohydrate. No, no, it's it's in the rumen. Right. That's where it hits first. And. 
and it's a you know big fermenter and uh, the cow has to suffer the consequence of what the microbes are doing in in her rumen. I mean that that was you know the the you know the, the paradigm in the past. Now we know you know with more and more research that actually um, the cow you know can influence what's going on in her rumen. It's not just the feed that determines what kind of microbes in there. The cow has something to say. Um, so, so I think it's it's kind of all all of the above in a, in a way that needs to be integrated, right? So it, it's really the diets that matter, not just the protein or the carbohydrates. It's it's how you put them together. Um, and I think we should, you know, really rethink now the way we think about diet formulation. Not again in feeding the cows, you know, uh, but feeding the microbes that feed the cows. Um, you know, to talk in in very general terms. So clearly we know it to, to be a little more you know, practical and concrete, um, nitrogen use efficiency, nitrogen utilization, urea will depend, you know, obviously dramatically on the level of nitrogen. If you have excess nitrogen in the diet, um, that will show up very quickly as, you know, high level of urea in, 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 in your milk associated with a high level of urea, you know, lost in, in the urine. Um, but the type of energy and the amount of energy, you know, that's available throughout not only the digestive system, but metabolically in the cow can also influence tremendously, um, you know, the, the, the overall efficiency of nitrogen of the cow. I like the, I like your comment about the silos. Sometimes I feel like we not, and, and, you know, you, you, we do get very specific in our silos. You know, I am a nitrogen or a protein person. I'm a fat person. But I think even just stepping back to the whole cow isn't quite far enough sometimes, right? Like if we're just focused on the cows and the cows inefficiencies, then I think we maybe miss some stories that we could be seeing if we were looking at the system as a whole. Um, and I think a big, that's missing a lot in our conversations. So, so thank you so much for bringing that up <laughs> <laughs> because I know I, I expanded myself a little bit with the history of my career and my research, but I haven't told you where I am now and where I'm going. And, well, or, go ahead then. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, um, and it's been there by the way, all the way that goes back to my years as, as an international theory extension person. Yes, definitely. You need to look not just at the cow, but the whole system. Um, and and actually, I'll I'll go back to describing an, an, you know a new another area of research that that I've had all along the years, which for some reason I have developed internationally, not as much in in the states. But it's that's exactly it: the, the study of the sustainability of different dairy systems. Uh, from around, from in, in different parts of the world, and and um, and to to make a long story short, um, so I'm now in sabbatical, by the way, and then I'm talking to you here from Quebec. I'm looking oh. at a lot, I'm looking at a lot of snow here. Okay, um, <laughs> with and, your French speakers. Yes, I am among French speakers here. Yes, yes. And uh, so at the beginning of, beginning of my sabbatical, I did sit down and, and um, wrote a perspective paper that was just published in uh, Frontier in Animal Science. And I basically tried to link um, dairy system sustainability with the sustainable development goal of the United Nations. So, so um, 
and 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 going back over the course of my career earlier um with with work with colleagues here at uh, Quebec we did publish a paper in journal of dairy science where we looked at um um we developed a spreadsheet which is a linear program program that basically does what a least cost ration formulation does but not at the level just considering the cows and the feed but of course considering the herd and the crops and the feed that you can buy so right the 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 crops that you're producing are, are, are you know serve as a feed source for your herds and then the, the manure that the cows produce can serve as fertilizer for your crops so we try to put that all into a, a linear programming software that you know allowed to not only formulate rations for the different groups of animal on the farm but formulate those ration based on you know the crops that you have on the farm the type of rotations that you have on the farm to make best use of the nutrients that you have available on, on the farm so so that was kind of a, a start of you know looking at formulating um diet not just you know saying what's I what's in my what do I have in my silos and what feed can I buy on the market but you know it's the, in a more systematic system of my farm you know my situation what kind of ration would be most appropriate for me so that was kind of the beginning of this idea for me to go beyond looking at the cow when you you look at at, at um, nutrition and I guess I, I went you know a few steps further in the last few years as I said a moment ago when I realized that the long-term sustainability of dairy farm and dairy systems doesn't depend on us, right? It depends on the consumers. If the consumers stop buying milk and dairy product, we're done. And, and so, and it's not just, it's no longer just a matter of them having confidence in, in the quality of the product that we, we, you know, we deliver to them. Um, but it's it's the environment, it's the social, it's animal welfare, and I and I you know I I got confused about you know what this is all where, where you know what are the problem what you know how do you define sustainability how do you define system, um, and it's only when I a few years ago came across those sustainable development goals that I. I saw it as a holy grail kind of thing, you know. It's like, well, this is, you know, if if we put our research, our instruction, our extension effort, you know, with the knowledge that there are ultimate goals that have been agreed by, you know, 180 countries around the world, that these are the, you know, worthy goals that all countries, all policymakers should be aware of and should be striving towards, we cannot go wrong, right? So this is why, you know, in, in the, the last few years of my career here, I've been trying to work more in that direction. How do we actually develop tools, indicators that are, you know, making sure that we are going in, in that right direction? Very cool. Is the answer, I guess, and, and you're gonna say it depends, right? Because you have this tool that's gonna tell you there's a whole bunch of different, you know, that's different for every farm. But is the answer just to feed higher concentrate diets? Oh my is goodness! That... So um, 
Well, it depends. <laughs> I'll, I'll share with you uh, one, one paper that I've been using in one of my classes uh, that I found quite fascinating. It was a paper published by the Livestock Systems Group in Wageningen in 2018, 2017. And here's what they, they did. Again, it was a modeling effort, linear programming effort. They said, we're going to look at, in Europe, so that was, a, you cannot escape, sorry, Europe. Um, they are ahead of us in 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 those in those. They've really ways. been pushing this, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ways of thinking, you know, differently. And so they basically said, okay, what are the feed that can be fed to livestock animals, farm animals that are not consumed by humans, because we don't want our livestock agriculture to be competing with humans. Right, because that's the argument when you talk about high concentrates. Like, well, you know, and you know, again, international agencies have you know done estimates. Right, twenty five percent, more than twenty five percent of the world's cereals goes into animals, and it's like, right, people who don't know anything about agriculture, it makes sense that they react like, why do we feed this to animals when you know kids are starving in Somalia? You know, you know, so that people, that's how people brains work, right? Um, so um, pasture, right? We don't eat grass. Obviously, the refuse of the human, you know, agro-industrial food systems, including right uh, restaurant waste that could be used by pigs or chickens, right, or even cows for that matter, that we we throw away, right. So that's the second source. Um, and then what was the third source? So pasture, refute, uh, um, food waste, and my goodness, um, there was a third categories of feed that for the heck of me just escaped my brain right now. But anyway, they were feed that obviously we don't consume, but an animal can consume. And they quantified how much of it was available in Europe, okay? And then they did a, a linear programming where they tried to allocate the pasture, the food waste um, to pigs to produce meat, chicken for broiler or for eggs, and then beef or dairy. And they tried to figure out how much animal product you know you would you would produce. And what they basically demonstrated is with those feed resources that are not in competition with human at all. Livestock agriculture in Europe could produce 39 grams of protein per European per day. The protein requirement of a human being, including Europeans among others, is about 55 to 65. About 40 could be produced by animals that are fed feeds that we don't eat. That's 100% competition-free, full benefits to human society at no cost in terms of consuming, you know, stealing the, the food that can be consumed. I think, you know, this kind of message, you know, should be, should be shared with population at large, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and why don't we do that? <laughs> and why don't we go more in that direction uh, to, to, to really make this happen? One last little detail, if you follow my story here. They also had, a, a, in that analysis, 
a categorization of, and I'm, now I'm really addressing your question here, of, well, what what is the level of productivity can we expect from those animals fed those low quality feed? And what they found out is that actually the higher, if you want to have high performing animal, which would be the animal that you would have to feed concentrates, well, that's not gonna work in that systems because those are low quality feed. So you cannot expect high production out of low quality feed. So you, so my answer, right, to the question that you had, you know, I'm kind of turning the question back to you and, and challenge you to see, well, was that the right question to ask? <laughs> no, I, I love that answer. I think it's a, it's a very nuanced uh, issue. And that's why I asked you that question because so, so yes, if we want to get rid of methane, feed high concentrate diets, right? But then you have to think what's that you have to take a step back to the system and what's that going to do to the system? And we also love to talk about how ruminants are the great recyclers. And I'm a big believer in that, you know, ruminants are these magical creatures that can take fiber or, and, and, you know, things that we can't digest and turn them into this high quality food source. Well, what's the trade-off for that? Right. And, and, you know, if we're going to feed them just high concentrates, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of land use that gets associated with that. And you have to consider the crop rotations, like you said. And yeah, so I think it's just a really, I, I'm sad that you're retiring. Maybe you're not allowed to retire yet. Because <laughs> I think there's a lot more teasing of this issue to really be done. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. And, and, um, and we haven't even touched, you know, the, the, the social aspect of, of dairy farming here and, and how it may contribute or, or this, you know, detract from the long-term sustainability, you know. And yeah, unfortunately, right, we live in a world today of just, you know, snapshot image that forms some views that are then very difficult to change. And so that's, yeah, that's uh, something, you know, I want to stay away from, but that's, that's the reality. Yeah, I try to, to think of sustainability um, Again, in 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 um, in the in the context of research, and it's it's very difficult to do really research in in sustainability because because sustainability is a broad concept that integrates, and you know that are that that little perspective paper that I just referred to to you. I mean, I felt compelled to go back and try to define the word system. If we were to you know honestly think about this, Gail, um, you know whether it's our master's or PhD degrees, and you ask 10 students, define the system to me. What do you think you're getting at? 10 different answers. 10 different answers, <laughs> right? Yeah. So how do you define system then? Oh, gee, is that, so? yeah, <laughs> here. Okay, so I can get into my lecture here, but basically a system is when you, it's when you, okay, first of all, a system is not the reality. Mm -hmm. You can, you, we create systems because we want to model the reality. Mm -hmm. okay. Reality is extremely complex, complex at, at infinity. We can never get to the end of it. So we need to simplify it. So we're going to create a model. And then, right, our research is about testing the, those models, those theories, right? Oh, yes, look, it works that the way we thought it would. Oh, no, you know, the, the data doesn't support this theory. We need to you know, find another theory. So the way I define a system is that you look at, first of all, you need to set boundaries. What's going to be in and what's going to be out. 
once you define those boundaries, and it can be, again, it's right there, it's very tricky because it can be physical boundaries. Okay, but my system is going to be my farm, you know, the limit of the land, the buildings, the physical thing, right? But you can also think of your systems, um, the farm as a systems, not physically, but more, you know, social orientation of the system, right? You you got you got um, the the farmer that has a family. You got the farmer that that you know has professionals coming in. So that's social interaction, right? Right. And you, now you define the the farm entirely differently through the social interaction that the farmer may have or may not have. You know to, that support the function of the farm, right? Um, so a system is made of different parts that interacts, and then you need to define when you create a system, a model, one or multiple function. What is this thing doing? What do you want the things to do, right? And so one thing that really characterizes systemic thinking is that you, you're not, you're no longer, unfortunately, it's hard to put it that way, but you, you are no longer looking at cause and effect. You're looking more at association behavior um, you know, you change an input, or, you know, to an input to part of the systems, it interacts with other parts of the systems, and that has an effect on the output. So, so it's not a simple cause and effect, it's a multi-layer, multi you know, kind of cause and effect. So, so, so when you, you think about re systems research, it's about interactions, um, more than the, and so and then about about indicators of behaviors of that systems because you cannot capture all the details of, of the behavior of each component itself um and so yeah it's a thinking about interactions and how it's it's like a ship on the ocean and all you can do is kind of you know stir it in one direction versus another directions how does the saying go uh all models are flawed but some are useful that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, all models are wrong. Yeah, all, all models so, are wrong. Yep, some exactly, are useful. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So, do you think you're close to to the to the useful model then in what you've been doing? So, so what I've done in the last couple of years in in that line of research, and we come back to protein if we want, but because I have, I have something else to tell you about protein. Oh yeah, we have kind of gotten a little bit straight, okay. but that makes it fun, right? Sure. Yeah. So so um, yeah, in regard of. Um, of this is that uh, so so I said well my 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 frustration a little bit in sustainability research was that you know the word sustainability has been hijacked right I oh, mean yeah. not, just, not just by commercial companies you know that everything you do needs to be sustainable anything you buy has to be sustainable but even in research ninety percent of you know research proposal that you read when you evaluate research proposal you know in the first paragraph you'll have something related to sustainability you know this is gonna make well that's how you get funding exactly that's what and that's what I'm saying it's, the yeah. concept has been completely hijacked yeah so 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 everyone around is you know has their own ideas of what sustainability really means and again so this was kind of my effort in say isn't there you know question you ask me isn't there this you know magnificent beautiful tools that's gonna really you know tell us what sustainability is and the closest that i came to looking to finding a tools like that 
is actually a tool that has been released by the FAO, the World Food um, and Agriculture Organization. And it's called TAPE. Okay. It's, TAPE stands for Tool for Agroecological Performance Evaluation. Now, that's a tool that, you know, you would look at it and you'd start laughing at it. <laughs> because it's a tool that has been created primarily for developing countries. But what I like about that tool is that it basically do, you know, it's to implement that tool, it's like two hour and a half, three hour survey with the farmer. So it's, it's quite, quite substantive. But you cover economic issues, environmental issues, and social issues. Plus actually a few more other things like governance. And I really love that idea of governance. Responsible governance, which is part of the sustainable development goal that I was talking about earlier. And, and governance has to do with basically who decides. Think about it. At every single level of decision-making on the farm. And there are decision-making all over the place, every day, all the time. Who makes this decision? How are they made? And if you really want, again, to have a system that's really working, you cannot have just one person calling the shots for everything, everywhere, all the time, right? So it's, it becomes a huge issue in and of itself, um, you know, to take just that one example of how to handle from a system perspective, decision-making process on the farm and, and responsibility and governance and decision-making. So, so, but that, that tool coming back to the to tape, give me, it needs to be adapted to advance dairy systems. Well, it was not developed for dairy systems to begin with. It was developed just for food producing, for farms that produce food around the world. And primarily, you know, targeted towards smallholders, the small family farm kind of thing. Um, and, and as I said, and I don't know, I can challenge you and my colleague to, to give me a, the name of a tool that we know of, that we use in our programs, whether it's research extension or instruction that really hits on the three pillars of sustainability. You know, together at the same time, in the same place, we don't. And that's that's another another example of this you know hyper specialization blinds us to the bigger picture. Well, and it's like it's like a land grant institution and the three legged stool, right? You can't have you know you can't just have one of them and not have the other two, or even just two without the other one. Exactly, exactly. And so so this is why I, I like the tool. And I've had a currently actually I do have a student um, that applied it in uh, in Peru in the Amazonian region of Peru on dairy systems, because anything I do, you know, has to do with dairy. Um, and we have colleagues in Mexico doing it with, you know, a small family farm in Mexico. And part of what I'm doing right here, right now in, in Quebec, um, with this Fulbright sabbatical that I'm, you know, on right now is to try to convince my <laughs> Quebecois colleagues that it may be worth their while to consider applying to some of the farms here. Eventually, I think I'd like to, again, um, the tool, as I said, you know, okay, I, I'll give you some of the big ideas um, that are built in the tool that I think 
are in our blind spot in the US. And in, in when I say in the US, I also mean Europe or the advanced dairy industries of the world in general. Number one, the role of women and woman empowerment and gender equity. That's it, you know, this is such an opportunity for the dairy systems, dairy, uh, dairy industry um, to be aware that we are gender biased everywhere. And we don't we don't give women you know the opportunity to 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 um, make decisions that could have a big impact. Um, and that tool tape, look at that, right? Number two, youth youth employment. So we talk you know so much in the U.S. about rural economy and you know local communities and the vitality that we're losing you know in, in rural America in the heartland of America. Well, how do we make, you know, address this, right? Providing young people with opportunity, with a future, right, on farms. Where, where is that in our research and teaching and, and this, you know, extension program? Farmers are doing it. Uh, and, and, but yeah, to your point about what's, what's the university doing to, to help, I think. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's yeah. a really interesting question. Yeah. So two examples of, of, you know, things that I've learned Looking at the big picture, looking at what happened in other parts of the world, looking at the you know those FAO efforts, um, and and as I said, right, you don't ask the same question about women empowerment if you are in Canada or in the U.S. than if you are in 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 Kenya or, or right in in Peru. Um, but those issues are there, you you know. So in in many different industries around the world, with the experience of, of my life, you know, working in different systems in different part of the world. Yeah. So it's it so let me see if I have this straight. The tape tool is designed for lower income countries, right? Yes. And yes. you've been doing some work in like Peru, Mexico, more middle income countries to kind of validate it there. Um Quebec would be well it's not it's a province, not a country, but but a high high income, right? So so is that kind of what you're focusing on right now then is is making sure that we can utilize that. So the FAO, I assume, has validated it at that low income level. And so you're working to kind of validate it at some of these other income levels as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. We will require some modification, um, you know, in the way some of the questions are being asked. And and maybe also some some of the indicators themselves, because again, to take an example. Um, not to to hide anything or to you know is for example one of the um, because the tool has been developed reminding you with in, in at least in part with the sustainable development goal as uh, you know in in you know with the light at the end of the tunnel over there you know that one of go to words um, so you know some of the sustainable development goal right it's no poverty stop hunger around the world that's number one number two well-being and wellness and well-being is number three and then gender equity is actually number five that one number four is number but there are 17 of them um so because they have those you know as as the 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 target um and nutrition we know right in 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 low middle income countries rural conditions farming and actually specifically livestock farming there's a paradox that you know the very small producers around the world who have livestock end up being the least nourished people 
because right they have the livestock as a you know, for many reasons and one of which obviously derives some subsistence but you know um they cannot they just don't have enough and to to eat and so the tool to find out the level of of um the adequacy of nutrition in the, on you know for the family members on the farm they will ask him ask the woman to, to a series of questions about what she consumed the last 24 hours and why the woman and and and, and Gail, this was my my life experience. I can tell you, because in 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 that context, in the social context of uh, many low and middle income countries, uh, the women fix the meals, and the meals are given to the man, to the sons, to the daughter, and if there is anything left, it's going to be for the person who cooked herself, in that order. And so you basically hit the lower rung of the ladder when you ask women. It's in developing countries what they ate, you know, in the 24 hours because she would even give, you know, her food to her kids, right, before she she gave it to herself. And so obviously, you know, this is not the kind of question you want to ask a, a Quebec dairy woman farmer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but right. But but we we have issues with what we eat in this country too right yeah um, that are beyond just the farm obviously yeah well that's so are you gonna get it figured out by the end of your sabbatical then oh you gonna get no, close, at least? no no i you, you know i i just need to to uh to slow down and so, <laughs> you know not get myself too excited about all this and you know the, the world will be okay with or without me thinking about this so yeah well, I guess maybe a better way to ask my question is, how close are we to having it validated for higher income countries? Well, I'm to be honest with you. Uh, so I'm, I'm so so again to be very down to earth and practical. I'm waiting, you know, as we speak, for a, a, a proposal um, that was to do this in Wisconsin, um, and that would be very useful if we actually have the funding and I have the student who you know has been using the tool you know, in a different context. And so that would be great to, to and I'm not saying that <laughs> the result of this work, if we do it, is going to lead to the ideal tool, but, you know, at least it's going to be a step in that direction. Um, I think the FAO itself uh, is looking into making the tool relevant in as many contexts as possible. So they may, they may be interested in really looking more um, in how to make that tool relevant to the advanced um, you know, dairy systems of, of the world, you know, but, but again, to go directly to your question, I, I think the right answer again is, you know, my right answer, it's, it's depend because, and that's going to be the, the blessing of the curse of a tool like this is that, but, but there's something that we can do about it. So on the one hand, it, it, they are issues that are universal as I, you know, shared a few of them with you today. And, and those issues, I think if they are universal, you could have a tool, right, that address those issues, regardless of the context, because it's every everywhere that issue is at play. But then, you know, there is also a lot of very specific things that are very contextualized, right? That it depends on, you know, whether you are, you know, in in Wisconsin or in California or or in the Netherlands or in in, in Africa, and so. You know, to be relevant, you need to account for you know what's specific to the context. And so, I, the future, I can imagine it to be some sort of two-layer 
you know, some, some things that, you know, is universally accepted, you know, and, and the global dairy industry seems to want, for example, to be carbon neutral by 2050. Well, how do we, how do we help every single farm? If it's true, right? Well, then, then the farmers needs to be carbon neutral. So it, you do have some that are, you know, emitting greenhouse gases, well, then you have to have others that's going to be sequestering that gases if you want to be net neutral, right? So you see that universality is there. And I think the tool that we're building should be helping farmers, no matter where they are in the world, to figure out whether they are, you know, they should be buying carbon credits or, or selling carbon credits, right? Um, and so this is an example of a universal thing that could be built in, you know, something like tape. And then there are things that I think are, are very unique to different dairy systems that local scientists should be developing to address the very specific needs of the, the, the farmers, the population of farmers that they're working with. That's, that's, you know, unique to them and not to others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the way of the future for in, in, in sustainability research. Well, we have, I, I love this tangent that we've gotten off on, but I do want to give you the chance to talk. You said maybe you had something else to add about the protein story. Oh, okay. So I want to give you sure. a chance to kind of address that before we wrap up. Yeah. So, so it's 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 a little bit of a setup here because, um, uh, well, it, with my student, we just submitted the paper to JDL just yesterday, believe it or not. Oh, congratulations! So we'll see, you know, what the reviewer is going to say. But what we did in that you've proud, you you're aware, I'm sure, and and your audience is aware that you know in protein nutrition. Um, not only do we want the low crude protein, whatever that means, but we also, part of that low crude protein story that we built in our heads for decades now is you want to feed, if you decide to feed 16.5% crude protein, it's not 16.7 or 16.3. You need 16.5, that precision, right? Yes. That constant, every day, right on target. Because if you give too much, you waste it, you know, and if it's too low, you don't meet the requirement. So you know that um, some group had done some research with oscillation of crude protein. No. Yeah. So we jumped on the bandwagon at that one. And, and so we did an experiment. What, but what we did that was not done before that we did in this study is that we had oscillation around two level, two medium level, two average level. One average level was 15 and a half. That was the high level. And the other one was 13.8. And we varied the protein one and a half going up for two days. So the 15 and a half went to uh, 16 and a half, set, you know, almost, almost 17 that high. I don't think it went that high. So we, we varied it, you know, and, and then we dropped, you know, of, of one, one unit and a half um, below the average for the next two days. So in four days, the animal goes, you know, um, one and a half above target, and then the two days after that, two one and a half below target, and we compared that oscillating right one and a half above and below average to the static, the same average level all, all day, and we did that with um, mid to late lactation cow, so they were not at peak. Okay, that needs to be made clear. They were, but they were producing close to 40 kilos of milk anyway. And so pretty decent milk production. And, and the story is that, you know, so 
let me be clear. Some of the cows in that study were subjected to 12.2% crude protein for two days in a row before they were, you know, back up to 15, a little more than 15 and a half. There was no impact of those treatment whatsoever, whether it was oscillating around the high level or oscillating around the low level, no impact whatsoever in any performance parameters of the cow. Um, the only thing that was impacted actually was MUM. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so so the, my big story here with this is, again, you know, like sustainability has been hijacked, you know, the word precision agriculture is being hijacked here. And to, be, to get to my, the point of my story is, as nutritionists, sometimes we should be humble enough to realize that we're working with an animal that has been in the making for about 50 million years. Yeah. It's called the ruminant animal. Yep. And those animals really know how to handle high and low in, yep. in, in what they feed and much better than we can understand them. So in other words, right, the research that we did was, we don't use the word precision agriculture in our paper, but you know, if the cow can handle, you know, one and a half percent crude protein up and downs every two days and still like it shows that the cow has the ability, the reserve, you know, because obviously this is this is where that research is. Right. What are the limits? Right. Of, uh, of that, that you can vary crude protein without the cow noticing because she's got the mechanism in place to to respond to it. So so it really, you know, this kind of research really, again, challenged one of the big um you know, paradigms that we had, dogma that we had in nutrition, right, for, for decades now is that, well, you know, on the energy side, cows has a lot of reserve and, you know, you, she pumped them and you need to replenish them. But, you know, that doesn't exist for protein. Actually, it exists for protein. Not obviously to the same extent as for energy, but cow has somehow, you know, the ability to find those critical amino acids to produce, you know, milk protein to the same extent, whether she's got 12 and a half percent crude protein for two days in her diet or not. Well, I have a theory that, and again, you know, nutrition's near and dear to my heart, but I have a theory that a lot of our job is actually to make the cow, make life easier on the cow so that she can do what she needs to do with that nutrition, right? So it'd be interesting to look at some of that, like, okay, what if a cow has in a overstocked pen, right? Like, so looking at some of the social dynamic, going back to your idea of the system, right? And um, I think a big part of our job is actually managing those cows so that they can get the most, so that they have the resilience to be able to handle those nutritional challenges and get the most out of the nutrition that we give them. So, yes, yes. It, you know, our cows are extremely, you know, finely tuned genetic machine, right? And, mm. and so if you want, if, if you invest into the genetic, you want your, your return from that genetics and that's the cost you have to pay, right? The, the cost may not be the, quite the right term here, but, but in a way, when you think about the systems approach, yes, it is, right? Because again, going back to my original idea of talking about systems, now, right, you've got animal scientists who wants to make the animal more sustainable, whatever that means. 
And then you got the crop scientists working on making the crop more sustainable. You know, at my colleagues here yesterday were just telling me they have a research program here where they are trying to lower the protein in alfalfa and increase the level of sugar in, in alfalfa. You know, like, I don't know, maybe agronomists think that, you know, you just give alfalfa to the cows and you're done. I don't know. What, <laughs> so. But again, right, the, the talking, you know, if the nutritionists were to talk with the, the agronomist, uh, you know, a little more, maybe, you know, there would be less e issues there. And, yeah, I think that's a great pitch for doing more transdisciplinary research. Yes, yes. Well, before we move on to our big three questions uh, that we ask every guest, is there anything, any other last thoughts that you want to share or any, any summary points that you, that we didn't touch on today that you want to get out there? What am I going to say? I'll say that, you know, I've been so lucky going back, circling back to where we started. You know, I landed in Madison in 1985, coming from a dairy farm in Belgium. My story is that actually the day that I flew out of Belgium, I milled the, the cows that morning um, before going to the airport. And I've been so blessed to, to um, being able to, you know, uh, develop my career, professional career, and, and um, found a family, you know, in, 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 in Wisconsin, in the U.S. So I'm, I've been very grateful um, of the opportunity that I've been given just because I love the dairy to begin with and going, yeah. And so, so this, I'm going to be eternally, you know, grateful. Now I know that sometimes people think, gee, Michelle, you are so, so, um, uh, sometimes, uh, how do I want to say this? You know, and I, I, are you, are you really one of us? You know, you seem to always have the little edge, you know, of, you know, yes, but, um, and I think I'm do I'm I'm a little bit like that, you know, because because I I want the best, and I I, I truly believe, you know, in in the value of of dairy farming. And you know, I I've been in it in in so many different form, you know. Again, milking cow, feeding calf, and doing this myself, you know, to researching it, to doing this international extension, and then doing the instruction in in dairy. And and I think it's it's hard. It's hard. Um, but there is hope, and and I think we, we we have a lot to contribute in many in many ways, and so this this is kind of my my last little you know, coming back thinking. Well, I think it's the yes, but people who keep us moving forward. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. All right. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Our Yeast 40, Ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. We ask all of our guests three questions. Um, and I think you you know what these are. So uh, we'll jump right into the first one. Uh, our first question that we ask everybody is, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? 
gosh, I hate that question. It depends. It depends. Again, it depends. Uh, depends. You know what? What are the resource is being used for? Um, you know, I mean, these days, honestly, I don't have a single source that I'm using. I'm using. You know, I mean, again, that's one of the blessing to being at the universities. Got you got those incredible library databases that you can just find things you didn't even know people had thought about. So. Um, it, it's not a specific dairy resource, but it sure helped me get to the, a lot of dairy, dairy resources. So there's not a single, you know, um, resource. But, you know, I'll, I'll say that, you know, the, the large dairy herd book, you know, that was produced a few years ago was kind of a pretty, you know, in, interesting to look through and, 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 and learn from. Um, and then, you know, to be... <laughs> It's also very, very, very bad here, you know, very self-serving. But, you know, um, w when I was doing this international work, I produced, I authored a series of material that was called the Technical Dairy Guides and the Dairy Essentials that were translated in eight different languages. And, and uh, no, this is, this is not about me, Gil. Um, this is, again, to me, I'm, going to tie this with the point I just made a moment ago when you asked me for my last thought. I had, you know, so this was written in the late, in the mid, early 1990s. That's when it was sort of dating myself, right? Um, the, you, you go forward to, you know, 2015, 2016, you know, five, six years ago, a little bit before, um, uh, COVID hit us. I had students who had done study abroad in Latin America and in Africa, and they would come back to Madison and they would show, because they had to show, material that were covered in the courses that they had taken. And that material was the material that, you know, I had written in the 1990s. And, um, you know, I... I I've been blessed to travel a lot around the world. And um, one of my last travel right before COVID again was in, in, um, in Colombia. And, you know, my, my host, you know, because when I go to a country, that's always, you know, I accept to go somewhere only if they take me to visit dairy farms, you know. Um, and, and sure enough, there was this, this entrepreneur who had started, you know, he was a leader of his community and he had the whole thing printed out in his shelf, you know, and he said, this is the material that I use to start what you see now, you know, and there was, you know, a, a community of small farmers in a, in a, in a remote valley from Colombia. Um, so, and this is what I was talking about, about, you know, knowing about dairy, knowing about how to make a cow work, no matter where you are around the world, um, that will sustain communities. And so, um, so th those materials, obviously they are completely outdated now, but they had a big impact. I know without me even knowing the impact that I was, that I was causing with this material, so. Oh, that's really cool. All right, our second question that we ask everybody is, what is your favorite non-dairy related book or resource? So, I'll I'll go to my gut here to my gut instinct. So uh, 
one book that I've read that had a big impact on me as a human being is Les Miserables of Victor Hugo. Oh, good one. Everybody That's... knows, I'm sure, the musicals and some of the, you know, but, but, and reading the whole book is not for the faint of heart. They it's a thick you. one, yeah. It's a thick, and, and there is a lot of twists and turns in there. But, but it was, and again, I'll tell you a little story here. Sorry to, to give anecdote like this, but it's a long book. And I do remember reading the book when I was going back and forth, traveling between Europe and the U.S. And so being stuck in an airplane is a good time to read books. And I was reading that book. And, that, and I was close to the end one, one time when I was coming back to Madison. So I could not let the book down when I came home. And, and I, you know, with all my work ethic as, as a dairy farmer, you know, when I went to the university, you know, work is work, you go to work, you know. That day I did not go to work to finish reading the book. And and um and I was in and I was a basket case. You know, I, I was in tears at, at reading the end of that book. I mean, everybody knows how it ends, but if you got the full book behind you when you see the end going, this is the, the ultimate um altruism that you can you can imagine a person can go through when they've had the whole world against them all their life. So that's a good one. I like that. All right. And our last question is what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not successful? Be authentic. Be yourself. Mm. You cannot fake it. <laughs> <laughs> I say that in part, I think, you know, being being um, very influenced by my years of trying to do my best to help my student learn, you know, being an instructor. Um, when you're in the classroom, and again, this is why it, this concept came to me. You know, students know best. You know, um, if if you are if you are just um, making it up in front of them, or and and so you don't want to make it up for them. It's not about you; it's about them. And I think any professional needs to remind themselves: yeah, it's not about me; it's about the people I'm serving. So, and 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 to to do that, you need to 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 find who you are, and you you need to be authentic to yourself, true to yourself, and build on who you are and what you're good at, and go with that. And don't try don't try to be or to do things that you are not. Well, that's a great note to end on. Um, before I let you go, though, is there anywhere that people can find more information about yourself or the work that you're doing, or can connect with you? Um, any any pitches that you want to make for for information that's out there? Well, you know, I do have uh, my own little website that's available, um, open to the great big world out there. It's um, dairynutrient.wiz.edu, um, and you know, I haven't been able to keep up with um, you know updating it uh, very, very regularly. But at least if people are interested to learn more about me, you know, there's some biography in there. Um, example of some of the material I teach, a little bit about the research that I've done. So that's one easy place. I mean, the other place, if they want to learn more, is just go on the um, University of Wisconsin Department of Animal and Dairy Science website and, you know, under faculty people, they'll find the faculty, they can find me, and there is more up-to-date information and publications there. So, yeah. Well, it was really great to talk to you today. I hope you enjoy the rest of your sabbatical. How long are you going to be over there yet? 
Um, at the end of May, until the end of May, yes. I'll, I'll be here until the end of May, back uh, to, well, to Costa Rica, then the States, and I'll be back in Canada at in Ottawa. Hopefully we'll see you there. Yeah, I'll see you there. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Gail. Good luck. Yeah, you too.